all like all the best uh, politicians, we make a promise, and by Job, do we deliver? Uh, we said that uh, we would be back uh, after recording a podcast last week after another unscheduled uh, absence. And look, we're here. We've done it again. This is Football Unfocused, hosted by Mark and Matthew. This is Mark. Matthew is the other man. Hello. To speak. Oh, there we go. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Bean. I came, I came oh, I a bit early there. <laughs> this is going to be such a fucking great episode. This is going to be so dynamic. You're pumped. Yeah, You're, up yeah, for it. You're on your yeah. lunch break. Everything's, <laughs> everything's just so interesting. Wow. I know, I know. I've never no, seen I'm you just... like this before, man. <laughs> you really, are you, you judging me? Are you want performance you... enhancers, Matthew? Well, I got my tea. Yeah. Are there roids in it, Matthew? <laughs> Is that what they call them? Yeah, are um, you on the roids? Yeah, they call it Poe, don't they? Do you remember? Who calls uh, it Poe? Who, who calls what? Uh, all the cyclists used to take um, blood infusions. Right. I thought that was the EPO, wasn't it? EPO. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they called it Why do I know? Sure. You're a fucking cycling fanatic. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Giro's starting this Sunday. Shall we talk about the Giro? Well, I mean, there's, I know a couple of listeners, one in particular, who's probably feeling a bit down today, um, a big Arsenal fan who would love nothing more than to talk um, about that and then and then the sort of road racing season over the next few months uh, rather than the shite that uh, we come out with. But, you know, we've got to confront... We should get we've got to, him on. Yeah, well, we, we really should, yeah. The open invitation, uh, Philip, uh, uh, whenever you fancy it, mate, just dial in, <laughs> anything... You know, we'll just scrap the Matthew part of this uh, podcast and <laughs> yeah. really we'll take it to another level. Um, yeah, no, no, I mean, well, anyway, it's great, that Matthew, that you seem, you know, so enthused and pumped. And I'm assuming that is going to transfer itself into your um, attention to detail and watching football over the last seven days and the, the, the contribution that you're going to bring, the insights uh, and the, just the general things you've noticed. Because as... <laughs> As I think any sane person will recognise, there is nothing more hilarious and, f- <laughs> and, and, and uh, than, than being having things pointed out to you that they've noticed. Um, <laughs> without which, the career of Michael McIntyre uh, would not exist, would it? <laughs> yeah. He notices all sorts of, of things, um, as do a lot of other comedians, but particularly Michael McIntyre. Yeah, he's noticing stuff, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. There was a there was an interesting article uh, in the Guardian. It was about how ridiculously imbalanced the understanding of football is between journalists and managers, and yet yep. managers have to sit there week in week out and listen to these journalists um, who are obviously very enthusiastic, well, generally quite enthusiastic football supporters, come out with the most inane observations, sort of banal questions, questions. Yeah, 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 and they have to entertain them and. And I think it was it was um, it was following a, a particular Jurgen Klopp uh, press conference where he just yeah. I think he just just got so tired of it and and he said it's amazing really that managers don't get more tired of it. don't lose it all the time yeah, yeah just because they are so yeah. knowledgeable. I heard, I heard uh, Rory Smith so. um, uh, of the New York, brilliant journalist of the New York Times uh, make this point a little while back, a month or so ago, where he said, imagine if you are like you know, at the very top of your profession, I don't know, in like you're, you work in finance or you're a data analyst or something, or I don't know, you're, you're, you're a professor, you know, so, you know. A brain surgeon, I think. Yeah, the- anything, anything, <laughs> yeah, literally anything that's good, right? And then some mug who's got a kind of back of a fag packet idea about what your industry is like <laughs> and what you're, uh, just starts asking you the most like ridiculously 
basic questions that demonstrate zero knowledge of the day-to-day pressures yeah. and priorities that you face. Yeah, that, and that is what... And the thing is, there are a lot of really brilliant journalists who do, I think, understand and make the effort to understand um, the role of a football manager or the life of a footballer and the game itself, the workings of the game itself. But for every one of them, there's probably five absolute fucking chances who think that, uh, you know, in a sort of social media world where you sort of create your own content, you can just knock out any old shit. Um, and that's why we're producing this podcast. So, <laughs> so yeah. But no, you're, nicely but you are right. I mean, if I was, you know, yeah, I think that it is amazing. And, and when you also think about particularly like take the Premier League, you know, obviously with the, the, the attention, the worldwide attention and the, the money and all the contracts, the broadcasting contracts and everything and ob- the obligations on a manager. So they've just been through a couple of hours of extreme mental uh, uh, torture to, to, to some extent, you know, on a bad day. Uh, let's just pick uh, someone random, for example, in my um, <laughs> oh, no, oh, bad day. Let's guess oh, do, you, do you think you're this <laughs> uh, Oh, uh, let, we don't often talk about Frank Lampard, do we? So maybe, yeah, just pick Frank, Frank, <laughs> Frank at random. Uh, just random. It could have been anyone, but it is, again, it's Frank Lampard. Tory Frank Lampard, the Tory, the Tory Frank. Uh, Frank, Frank Lampard, the, the big Tory supporter. Just in case uh, anyone didn't write that Frank Frank Lampard is a Tory, always has been a Tory, uh, and everything about him is Tory. But anyway, Frank Frank Lampard, the Tory. Um, let's just say, he, so he's had an afternoon where he has spent days preparing his team for a a a, a, a match, and then he's t- you know he's no stone unturned. Um, you know, the team have got a plan. Every individual player knows what's expected of them. And he stands, has to stand by the side of the pitch and watch them completely fail to implement that plan, watch the opposition run through them and, and have to face a, a sort of a, a crowd that have not they can't even be bothered to hurl abuse at the team anymore because they've just sort of given up and they just sort of funnel away. And then he, then he has to probably have about 30 or 40 different um, journalists having an opportunity to obviously the, the TV and radio ones are, are sort of one on one, so there'll maybe be three or four of those. But they come one after the other, after the other, after the other. Then they have to go into a the press, the written press um, yeah. uh, press conference, and uh, and then you know that that'll be a packed room, and a lot of them want to ask questions. And yeah, the manager can leave early, but a lot of the time they'll have to face and often the same questions again and again, or just a slightly different nuance on essentially the same question. So it is surprising they don't kick off more often. And it is probably wrong to always judge it harshly from the point of view of the manager when they do blow up. Um, But it is still funny when they do. I know, poor old Frank, uh, Tory, the Tory Frank Lampard. Um, Matthew, just before we, uh, I mean, this is great. We've actually started with some real quality football content. So I'll, I'll make, I'll <laughs> make the questions. The questions? Oh, okay. Absolutely not. The questions are a core part of it because for anyone who's listening for the first time, uh, firstly, sorry. Um, but if you continue to listen, you will uh, recognise that uh, we do this podcast. It is ostensibly about football um, and uh, that's that's hence its name and its uh, creation. However, my co-host Matthew isn't necessarily as into the game as I am, so uh, I kind of ask him some bit more personal questions. Some some really personal, quite intimate. Some just sort of mundane, um, just to really open the door to the world, the the, the mysterious world that is his uh, his sort of inner psyche and his day to day workings. And it has produced over the months and years some incredible information and anecdotes that I think that's we'll live a with all of us forever. 
opinion. Well, I I can only speak from the point of view of all. I mean, you've had thirty message. years of uh, me. I know, no, and I, and I still answer. find you intriguing. So what does that <laughs> what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Oh yeah, that's uh, actually you know, the opposite. You really, are, you really are. And the the sort you know you're like at the well that just keeps on sort of spewing out uh, <laughs> sort of infected dirty water. Uh, so Ma- Matthew, question one, uh, Matthew. Um, this is a sort of hypothetical question because I don't really ask you many of them. So I thought I'm going to get into the, the dream status of Matthew. Where do your, where your ideals are? If you were, if I clicked my fingers and you were a multimillionaire, what would be the first sort of indulgent purchase that you would make? Mm, you say we don't do hypotheticals. You asked me who I'd sleep with over Stephen Steve Davis. <laughs> Stephen yeah. Hendry, yeah, that is true. All right, maybe <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I assume that was a hypothetical. You didn't have... like ask you questions about what boxer shorts you wear and do you like scented candles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what would I do with a million pounds? I said, if you became a multi-millionaire at a I'm click not... of a finger, what's the first indulgent purchase that you would make? Um, oh god, that I'm so tight. You I'm are so incredibly tight, tight aren't you? Uh, You're probably the tightest person I've ever it would... met. <laughs> I, I, it would take me a while to think about it. To get out of the mindset. You wouldn't yeah. suit being low. I don't think you... I think it's so ingrained in you. What? I don't think you could ever... Yeah. No, no, being a some... mean-spirited, horrible person. Sometimes yeah. I didn't really think. If I became rich, I would like to take you and our other <clears throat> circle of friends uh, on a holiday. Just... Yeah. Just as a sense of repayment for all the beers that you end up buying me on a night out. Wow, that's um, incredible. At least you recognise that debt and that you do owe us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah. yeah, you do. But um, I've sort of now ruined that. Where would we go? Crabbing, crabbing in Cromer? <laughs> Is that a Partridge reference? But, Butlin, Butlin's in Great Yarmouth? Yeah, yeah. Do you, well, that's it. Do you like? Do you like those kind of... Yeah. <laughs> Seventies um, holiday camp style. Well, yeah, I mean, my my nan was from North South End, Peter Pan's playground. Yeah, yeah. So you're okay. So in answer to your question, you're a multi-millionaire. Your first indulgent purchase would be to take uh, me and our other close circle of friends, and um, maybe even our families, if you're feeling that generous, uh, wow. to a uh, to Peter Pan's uh, playground in South End on Sea. If if you're up for it, if the if the dates align, <laughs> yeah, I'll make a note of that. <laughs> I'm just going to write this down so that you can't back yeah. out when you if when you win the lottery or become a business tycoon, or just get left left an extraordinary amount of money by a relative that you've never heard of before, just some eccentric, great, yeah, great, yeah. Great Canadian distant cousin yeah. who once lent me yeah. eight hundred grand. Or we were talking about Owen Hargreaves so before that. I just I just uh, had a coffee on a table next to Owen Hargreaves. Maybe we could get to know him, and he'll leave you uh, a million. Just give you maybe, a million pounds. Yeah. Maybe, well, Probably he's, he's similar sort of age to us. So if you're relying on inheritance, it would <laughs> require the, the sort of untimely early death of Owen Hargreaves, and none of us wants that. No. no. So I'd have to hedge my bets on someone a bit older, maybe. Right, okay, him. good. See, this is why I ask the questions, because you never know what bizarre uh, uh, road you're going to end up going down. Matthew, this is a much more kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, just a, this is a, you know, a black and white Answer the fucking question. <laughs> List your, your favourite three supermarkets in order from one to three. Not ones that you shop in through necessity. What are your favourite three? Go. Uh, 
probably so Aldi, Lidl, and M and S. Yeah, beautiful. Wow, you really good. Yeah, yeah. So you're going for the two cheapest uh, options. Yeah, and then M and S, which is you know upper end, shall we say? I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah. no Harrods, but it's you know of the high street brands, it's 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 yeah. towards the top, isn't it? Yeah, you don't shop in Harrods, do you? No, Matthew. Harrods <laughs> is in Knightsbridge. It's too far away for starters. London. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, <laughs> I mean, imagine going to at Harrods just to buy some like tangerines. Yeah, yeah, with you. <laughs> yeah, don't shop in it's Harrods. a two-hour round trip. There, you know, just in itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. That's because that's definitely the only reason I don't do all my food shopping in Harrods. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell, Matthew. <laughs> Third question, Matthew. What do you think about just leaving it out? Leaving it out? Just leaving it out. I was in leave it out. Do, do you ever think just leave it out? Uh, yeah. Not well. Not recently. Mm. Not not if um. Yeah, if someone's laying into me or something, you know. When was the last time you left it out? <laughs> well, that I left it out. Well, yeah. Somebody asked me to leave it out. Well, uh, either. either. <laughs> well, look, um, I don't think I... Yeah, this is a tricky question. Primarily mm. because we use it in different ways. But if, yeah, if somebody was like, Asking me to stop having a go at them, it'd probably be Joe to say stop asking me. Leave to... it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I'd ask her to, when she does the washing up, she often just does the washing and doesn't dry the dishes. So she's so literally I... leaving it out. She's leaving the. She's leaving out. it out, and then I'll say, "Can you please dry the dishes?" Because that's part of the washing up process. And she'll yeah. just say, "Leave me alone. Leave it out." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, off, I'm sorry. Inferring. What would stop you from doing the washing or the drying up? Well, that's it. That's what. I, so when I do the washing up, it the drying is part of the washing it's up process. I I find I I believe that yeah. she tells me. I assume when she says "leave me alone," she's she's just saying "leave it out." Yeah, it's nothing to do also with <laughs> or get out the, the house. washing or drying up Don't process. Back. She just wants you generally to just yeah, leave her yeah, alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Christ. So, so that probably. So, so I'm just, just on my. I'm just going to put you're in favour of leaving it out, depending on w- what you're. Yeah, leaving it out if from. it's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Okay, Matthew, <laughs> what to talk about today when it comes to football? So we are recording this on Thursday uh, lunchtime. Uh, what's it? The 27th of April. So it is the day after the um, sort of um, hype-filled league title decider between Arsenal. Manchester City, um, as well as a number of sort of key matches in the Premier League relegation uh, battle. Uh, it's also worth noting that Sheffield United got promoted back to the pre- pre- <coughs> pardon me <coughs> Premier League last night. So that's that's so far of the three teams that will be uh, promoted, uh, one that are coming straight back up, and another one who only have uh, had two seasons. Um, in the championship. Um, so here's hoping that of the four teams that end up in the playoffs, someone will emerge who's uh, maybe had a bit of a longer gap. But to turn our attention to the title decider, I'm assuming you didn't see it, by the way. Uh, uh, you're uh, right to assume that. Mm-hmm. Though I did get some of the updates on BBT. So you're aware of the result? Yeah. Yeah. I would describe it as 
a bit of a I don't like saying this, but it was really what it was a bit of a brutal reality check. I was at the um, the London Stadium last night, the soul soulless megadrome of a football stadium. A sort of you know, is a just a complete atmosphere vacuum of a like one of the worst places to watch football in almost every respect. Uh, I love it. I love the stadium, um, by the way, as an athletics venue. But Mike, it is just one, genuinely one of the worst places Can, to watch. Sorry football. to interrupt. So why why is that? Why have you had you been to Upton Park? Was the atmosphere better many many times? Why? My first my first ever football match was in March nineteen eighty nine at Upton Park. Um, <clears throat> I was seven years old, and my dad, as a teacher, his the head of his school uh, had a West Ham season ticket on the halfway line, uh, just above the chicken run. And he was away for the Easter holidays. And he, he said to my dad, oh, um, do you want to take your boy? Has he been to see a football match before? And, no, and like, I just got really into it in that sort of 12 months prior to then. It was West Ham against Norwich. Um, and I, I, I probably went to Upton Park, I don't know, 10 or 15 times over the years, normally to see Liverpool. And I went to a couple of other games. And that was a proper football stadium. And when... When they were on it, it could create a really fierce atmosphere. So I don't think it's anything to do with West Ham fans. The problem yeah. is the architecture of the stadium. It just because it's it was built as an athletic stadium. It's got this enormous round roof. A proper football stadium that encourages atmosphere and creates atmosphere needs, I think, to have quite an intense, steep element to it. It needs to be as close to the pitch as is possible. Stadiums that are essentially have a running track. I know West Ham have done everything architecturally to try and hide it, but ultimately there is still a running track separating the pitch from the fans. So as a result, like the the, the, the most the biggest demonstration of it is the walk that the manager has to make between the dugout and the side of the pitch to stand and change. It you know it's almost like the length of a fucking swimming pool. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I mean a, an Olympic swimming pool, a 50-metre job. Um, it, it, it is ridiculous. Um, and depending on where you are in the stadium, you really do feel a long way away. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that the way that the noise sort of echoes around. <clears throat> so rather than kind of tumbling down towards the pitch, it evaporates upwards. So... In that away end at, um, at the London Stadium, and it's also a terrible place to be in the away end as well because it's, there's a big split in the middle. So you've got the bottom section and the top section, and there's a real disconnect between what the what one section and the other section's doing. So you don't get you get really disjointed sort of songs. One half will join in, the other one a bit too late, so the timing's off, and it just it is, it is just awful. Um, yeah, so I can see why West Ham. I mean, the deal that they got to move... I even found out last night through somebody who works for the London Stadium that <laughs> the, the, the deal that Boris Johnson... It was Boris Johnson who signed off that deal and gave his Tory friend, um, Karen Brady, and the pornographers that run West Ham um, uh, a big favour, giving them that stadium at the taxpayer's expense. The extent to which the taxpayer, by which I mean the London Legacy Company and the London Stadium Company, <clears throat> um, continue to have to foot the bill for that stadium even extends to they have to pay uh it's around a hundred grand a year to have the hawkeye technology in the goals west ham don't even cover that so that is covered by the london stadium so that they don't pay for the corner flags goal posts the st john's ambulance anything 
like that. That is the deal of the century. And that was signed off by London Mayor Boris Johnson, the man that we all love and trust. Um, I, I mean, it is when you actually, I don't understand why people, more people aren't aware of it and raging about it because it is an absolute disgrace. But anyway, we're not here to talk about West Ham, but but I was just saying, I didn't watch the Arsenal uh, match last night at live because I was at West Ham. But being as it's only like a 10-minute walk from uh, my front door, um, well, via obviously a takeaway outlet and uh, some some <laughs> chat with, with, with friends, um, uh, I got home in time to watch match of the day <clears throat> and they did quite an extensive, longer section on that match than normally would. And it was clear that Arsenal got a bit of a humbling, really. I mean, City are, it's kind of in line with what I was saying last week, City are um, absolutely formidable. And at this stage of the season, if you're in a sort of foot race with them, it, it's it's actually quite ter- terrifying, bordering on demoralising because they just won't make an error. You, you just have to expect them to win every single match and you can't give them an inch. And really looking at it from Arsenal's point of view and, speaking to someone who would have liked to see them do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in past tense because I'm now assuming that they're not going to win the league. I hope, I'd hope i like to be wrong. I'd like to think the City will slip up somewhere, but there's nothing in history or current form that suggests that that will happen. Um, so, but Arsenal, really, the games leading up to that is where they've 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 really blown it, if you want to use that term, or, lot, or missed the momentum, like the opportunity to really capitalise on the position they got themselves in. Because, all right, they let some points slip at Anfield, having been 2-0 up. But I suppose, even despite the fact Liverpool having a poor season, that's still, you know, objectively a really difficult away game. So you could you could maybe, despite being 2-0 up, badge that as a point gain rather than two loss, particularly because, you know, Liverpool missed a penalty and then they completely took over the match on about 35 minutes and then created so many chances, they really should have won the game. Um, but then after that, two really, really winnable matches away to West Ham and then a home to Southampton. You've got to be getting six points there, and they got two. Um, drew them both, 2 0 up away at West Ham, drew to all, and then had a catastrophic start against Southampton. I think they went 2 0 and then 3 1 down. End up rescuing a three all draw, but you're at home to the bottom team. <clears throat> you're just surrendering the momentum. But that, these things happen over the course of the season, in a normal season. And I suppose this relates, again, to the point that I was banging on about last week, and it probably is a bit dull. But the, the standards required now to win the league are so almost unattainably enormous that you can't make you can't have the same uh, kind of undulation of, of form and results that, uh, that you would get in, a, in what you think of as a, like a classic league season. Um, and expect to get anywhere near it. You will be punished for every single error because you're up against a formidable state-backed winning machine that will just hit... When they hit their straps, they just win and win and win. And, I mean, they are they are incredible. And I, I'm a big believer in separating between the coaching and the players of Manchester City and the way that they play football and the way the club is run and funded. I have a massive objection to one of those things, and the other one I, I admire their aesthetic. Because I because I do think that I know that the money is, is unfair and you could make a strong case and say it's immoral in the same way that the way that PSG and Newcastle are, are funded, and that you know, is likely to be a, a problem that will become more and more evident as Newcastle grow inevitably over the next few years. Um, 
But there are many examples of teams, admittedly, maybe not to that extent, but who've had tremendous amounts of money over decades and have squandered it and put their faith in the wrong people and not had a plan and just thought the money in itself will be an answer to all the problems and it hasn't been. Um, I mean, there's one club in West London at the moment who really do seem to have fallen into that trap. I know people will, the contrarians would push back and say yes, but despite having a new manager every five minutes and running a club like a um, sort of, you know, egomaniac's wet dream for the last 20 years, they uh, still are a trophy, um, uh, you know, a very successful accumulator of trophies, and they are. Uh, But, you know, I, I do think that most football fans want to have an association between a particular era. You know, they want to look at eras in a club. You know, that was the... Pep Guardiola era, that was the Roberto Mancini era. And you like to think about chunks of time, two, three, four years, dynasties are created. That's what makes, that's what creates kind of folklore and mystique around a football club. Not, oh yeah, that was the six months we had Roberto Di Matteo before he was sacked and every single season being, oh yeah. So that was when the season when he took us up till Christmas and then this guy came in to save our season in, in January. And you just think, yeah, fucking hell, like where do you just lose fucking track and he lose the bloody will to live. Um, so Man City have never kind of gone down that road. And despite having all the, the money you could ever possibly want, they they are at they've right from day one. They've got the very best people in the very best decision making roles. Um, and as a result, they're just they're just absolutely unstoppable. And it's interesting because I always make the point on here about how the points like Arsenal, who have essentially ducked out of contention for the best part of two decades. They've had little flirtations with being in title races, but have not really been a contender for a long time now. And unfortunately for them, it will hit that if they don't win it next season, they'll, they'll, they'll have hit the 20-year mark since their invincible season of 2004. But the thing that has been a massive change, the, the season that Arsenal are likely to, to finish on would have almost certainly won them the league had they had that sort of pre-Man City and pre-this this lifting in the sort of standards required, but it's not going to because you have you have to go above ninety points now to to compete with Manchester City, and that is a you know that's something that hasn't been done that many times in football history in a sort of thirty eight game season. I was you know I was having a little look the other day. There was only there's even if you know in all the sort of league champions that have been in that time, there's there's probably only five or six who are going over ninety points, whereas Manchester City. Uh, Arsenal now can only get a maximum of 90 if they even if they get maximum points for the rest of the season. And City in recent years have got 100 points, 98 points, 93 points. Uh, that's just three seasons, you know, I can think of. Um, you know, and obviously, as a Liverpool supporter, it was remarkable that we got, we managed to get ourselves to, just to try and compete with City to 97 points. So they're one point behind them, 92 points. Again, finishing one point behind them, and then to win the league on ninety nine points, um, that's that's the kind of the extent you have to go to. So you either need that that rapid escalation in your own standards and relentless winning, or you need Manchester City themselves to implode. And the season that Liverpool won the league in twenty twenty, <laughs> City did in fact have a bit of a sort of mini implosion. They really did around the sort of autumn time. They they lost some unbelievable. They started with an away defeat against Norwich from memory, and then they really um, sort of disintegrated for a while. But I think possibly because um, you just, when you're being pursued by a formidable force like City, 
you just cannot, can never think that you're done and can't take your foot off the gas. That Liverpool, despite, I think they went into the lockdown when their football paused for a bit, something like around 25 points clear of, of second place. And they won the league that season by a ludicrous um, amount of points. Um, but they still just like, you 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 get in the mindset of just, you're just constantly looking over your shoulder, you know, like, like a horse in the Grand National that's ahead by sort of, you know, 25 lengths, but it's still like, hammering right to the end because you're just like nah if we stop just for a second they're gonna fucking get us so it is i i personally think it's a shame i know all tottenham and chelsea fans and everything everything won't uh a a friend of mine um who we've referenced already in the podcast messaged me this morning actually to say that in his lifetime uh arsenal have won um sort of five league titles and every one of them is a sort of dearly treasured memory and he can sort of think about each one of those in terms of like the seasons and probably what was going on in his life and all that sort of stuff. And how City have now won a league five times in the last six years. Do these titles mean as much to the fans? And is serial winningness really much of a necessity? So that's a difficult thing to quantify because, I mean, I suppose you could you could ask people who support uh, Manchester United between sort of 1993 and 2013. Uh, you know, twenty years of what well, they win thirteen titles in that time. Did does it ever, does it ever wear off? Does it ever become boring? Like, I think when you think of it about where Manchester City have come from, the time when they got their money, they they were they'd been owned for a couple of years by a Thai billionaire called Taksin Sinawatra, who was kind of they were having a little flirtation with trying to sort of be a a club at the dining at the top table. They'd made some sort of sort of seven out of ten sort of signings. Um not sort of like the 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 players they would have access to once they got the Middle East money, but they were they were sort of punch, starting to punch a little bit. And they got Sven Joran Eriksson in as manager sort of in that post England period. Um so they were kind of on the up and and City have as a club have had their moments in the late sixties, early seventies, won a couple of titles, etc. But they were always they were always really a bit of a sort of sleeping giant and massively underachieved. They'd had periods when they'd been in the second and third division. So fans whose memory goes back that far and thinking about what they've been through, and the fact they still sing a song called We Are We're Not Really Here. And that was invented because I think in their League One season in the uh in ninety seven ninety eight, ninety nine, which ironically is the same season that their their city rivals won the, the treble. Um, they were playing like an away game at somewhere like Stockport or York. And they just couldn't believe they were, it was like a midweek pissing down with rain, freezing cold, like a terrible performance. They just couldn't believe that they were in that position as a club. And they developed this song, we're not really, we're not really here. And they still sing that now. Like even though that they're, they're just like a club that people from like, you could basically sit there with your fucking feet up for 90% of their matches and, you know, not have to stress it because they're going to win, but they still sing that song. So there is, you know, so I suppose you, just like any club that gets massive success, you can probably split the fan base from those who will appreciate every single moment because they've the amount they've suffered, and those that have sort of you know jumped on the bandwagon in in recent years. Newcastle are going to be interesting because if they, as as again, uh, my esteemed colleague pointed out. Would they be more palatable if they just wanted to bring European elite football to the club rather than aim to show they are the best state in the world because they can win in sports? You know, 
that again is going to be really interesting because the, they let's face it these clubs aren't they're not they're not, they've not been bought because of the, their owners have a you know a passion for uh, um you know blade and races or uh, you know the the strawberry which is a pub behind the Gallagher end at St James's yeah, Park yeah, right. um <laughs> you know they they they're brought as a sports washing vanity projects aren't they so i don't I don't know how to how to how really to address. Do you have an opinion on that, Matt? Because like you're you're somebody who, you know, you're passionate about sport in general. To you, does it dilute your kind of your recognition of achievement if a club has been bought by a state asset and is being used as a sort of vanity project and is crushing all the opposition through sheer force of spending? Uh. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But but at the same time, is there any is there any alternative? And I guess that's why you were you were saying it would be so nice to see Arsenal win if they if if they had a one or if they you know do manage to turn it around or something this season, yeah. to, that you don't have to go down that route of being yeah basically underwritten by huge state resources so yeah i think i think it's undeniable that it does take the 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 romance slightly away from it but if you know i guess being pragmatic yeah because i don't believe that you can't avoid this sort of question about like you know would would Newcastle be more palatable if they just wanted to sort of demonstrate that they could compete and you know qualify for european competition like top European competitions and like sort of be in the mix. But I don't believe that, I don't believe that like the, the Saudi Arabian investment fund or the Qatari investment fund, I just don't think they work in, in, in that way. I just don't, you know, they are only ever going to do something because they want to be the ultimate victor and the best, and they will just keep going and with a bottomless pit of money until they do. And, you know, it does kind of make a mockery of it and, yeah, I I wish there was a way you could reverse it. Like you said, what do you, you sort of say? What do you do about it? Like I think that the only way that you can address these issues and create a level playing field is to have a fundamental overhaul of the way football is governed and bring in like regulation. But then, how do you? The, the horse is well and truly bolted, hasn't it? So how can you bring in? How can you regulate ownership of clubs that have already been purchased? You know, then you get into sort of legal hot water. Can you come along and retrospectively declare that the purchase of a club is illegitimate and illegal and seize that club at like some sort of, you know, state asset away from ironically another, another state asset. I don't know. I, I don't like what it. About, what, what about, I mean, that hugely unpopular proposition by, I didn't really go into the detail, but UEFA was talking about um, capping player, salaries yeah and in theory Seferin, the uefa president yeah. said didn't he that it will happen essentially yeah i mean in theory would that would that allow a wider number of teams to compete if they well, don't have to pay astronomical wages to well i mean you know very well, large wages where the cap is doesn't it if the cap yeah. at like 400 grand a week then essentially <laughs> yeah it just means oh like, go on then yeah yeah oh i'll i'll I don't know how I'm going to pay the lecky bill, but I'll try. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll try and manage. Yeah, I don't know. I do think that there is definitely a case for it. But the trouble is, 
it's really difficult to bring these types of things in when you've allowed your sport to essentially be the, be run along the most free market libertarian economic model completely lacking in regulation and all of a sudden i mean one of the things i think is really dangerous and again goes largely unnoticed is the amount of individual supposedly independent football clubs that are being purchased to create groupings so around europe you know i believe manchester the manchester city group have got a club in belgium they've got a club in america i believe I might have to check this. I hope I'm not wrong, but Girona, who beat Real Madrid in the in La Liga during the week, I have a feeling that they're owned by Manchester City Group. So, and the, but this isn't uncommon. There's there are clubs all over the world now that are owned by the same sort of super. It's it's almost unofficially creating like a franchise model, and then and where this could can lead to like the um, the Pozzo family who own Watford, for example, they also own Udinese in in Italy. And they use the two clubs to sort of, you know, almost like a, a if, so if one club are doing well, they'll ship players from the less successful club to the other one to support their success and sort of maintain it. So one suffers while the other one um, um, thrives. And for years, because the money's in the Premier League, Udinese, who are a proper big club in their own right, have been sort of undermined. And, and Watford, with the greatest of respect, are not sort of, you know, a, a big name. They're a mid-ranking club at best who have probably overachieved in having so many Premier League seasons in the last eight or nine years, um, have been able to sort of at will just take players from Udinese. Now that Watford are struggling a little bit, it sort of goes the other way. But like, so you're essentially creating a culture of sort of feeder clubs and chains whereby players move up through an organisation and be, at different destinations but that is at the moment i don't believe that it, under uefa rules that you can compete in the same competition as a club under the same ownership scheme and people will say uh oh what about red bull salzburg and red bull Leipzig?" but i understand that the, because the ownership model there's some quirk of that 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 makes it legitimate and allowed but i've heard talk and this is interesting because uefa are on, on one hand, talking about salary caps, but I've heard talk that they want to completely throw out the uh, controls on uh, sorts of ownership, group ownership, and being able to compete against teams when um, that you also own. And if they do that, then it really is like the gloves are off, and it will be you know you'll you will see a, a really depressing trend of football clubs being sort of cluster purchased by and and you know you can have a situation in ten or fifteen years where. Uh, like up as as few as eight or nine sort of super ownership groups control the entire sort of top level of Europe and even medium level of European football and it's or even world football. No one wants that. Surely the whole if you just cut football down to its basic, its really really basic sort of primitive principle that gets people into it in the first place, it's the hope, the joy, and the hope that your team will have its day. If you support. Leighton Orient, and you've had the you know almost your entire history in the bottom two divisions of, of of the professional setup, and even in the national league, the hope that one day you might get your crack at the Premier League, and that will be completely undermined if you're only ever going to be the third or fourth in the ladder feeder club for the group that owns I don't know Sheffield Wednesday. Or something. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like it's 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 really dangerous and it's really wrong, uh, and I hate it. And it feels it feels quite American, you know, it's that kind of like franchise, shove clubs around, move players around, everything, you know. And I just, yeah, 
I don't like it and I I hope it never happens. Um, so we'll finish there. Is also just worth saying, just purely on a personally indulgent uh, level. Um, my my obviously I'm, I'll make no bones about the fact I'm a Liverpool fan, but I have I have significant soft spots for Ipswich Town for um, family and historic reasons, and uh, Leighton Orient for geographic reasons in terms of where I live. And uh, Leighton Orient have just been confirmed as champions of League Two, and Ipswich Town need two points from two matches to confirm promotion uh, from League One back into the Championship. Um, Ipswich Town have been getting dates of pretty much just a touch under 30,000 in League One week after week. I think they've already pre-sold 22,000 season tickets for next season. They took 5,000 fans up to Barnsley for a Tuesday night game this week. Unbelievable. So that's what makes football special. The fact that, you know, most people who are, you know, part of the Manchester United Supporters Club in Kuala Lumpur, they don't know that. They know the kind of surface level stuff, but they don't know that in League One, there's a club that are former league champions, former FA Cup winners and UEFA Cup winners who take 5,000 fans across the length of the country from, a, you know, from Suffolk to South Yorkshire on a Tuesday night. That's what makes football brilliant. That's why people love it. That's certainly one of the key reasons why I love it. And it's, you know, it's not all about the Premier League, Matt. You know, this isn't Soccer AM. <laughs> and we're all the better for it. So, on that bombshell of us not being Soccer AM, it's time to say goodbye. Have a good week. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Football Unfocused. 